Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, we have a little bit different episode this week. I'm teaming up with Becky Winslow to kind of do a hybrid one, since she also does a podcast as well. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. So I'm Eric Geyer, the political pharmacist. Becky, can you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thanks, Eric, for the introduction. And thanks for inviting me to discuss this current hot topic in pharmacogenomics. As Eric mentioned, I am Dr. Becky Winslow. I'm the host of the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. The PGX for Pharmacists podcast is part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Like you said, I wanted you on here today because there's some big news in uh, pharmacogenomics or PGX for short. And one of the huge things that just got settled was a case in Hawaii with Plavix or Clopidogrel for the generic name. Hawaii Attorney General Claire Connors held a news conference to discuss the multi-million dollar lawsuit against Bristol-Myers Squibb in Sanofi. Here's part of that interview. And I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today, for participating in today's press conference. I'm joined not only by uh, Rick Fried, who is our local special deputy attorney general in this case, uh, and Dan Alberson, who, Alberstone, excuse me, who is representing the national law firm of Barron and Budd, but also by our deputy attorney general, Amana Moriarty, and also some additional uh, associates from Barron and Budd, including um, Peter Klausner, Evan Zucker and Elizabeth Smiley. We also have Pat McTernan, who is from uh, Rick Fried's, uh, excuse me, Cronin Fried Law Firm. So thank you to everybody. We uh, wanted to take the opportunity to answer questions and to talk a little bit about yesterday's uh, decision and order that was issued by the Honorable uh, Circuit Court Judge Dean Ochiai. Uh, yesterday, as Krishna said, Judge Ochiai entered a decision and order that awarded $834,012,000 in civil penalties in favor of the state and against the defendants, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and three Sanofi defendants, 
The evidence that Judge Ochi heard came in over the course of a four-week trial. This trial occurred in November, and it provided the basis for this decision and order. The evidence that Judge Ochi received confirmed the following, that between December 1998 and March 2010, Bristol-Myers Squibb and the Sanofi defendants failed to warn Hawaii physicians and consumers, that is patients, that Plavix, a drug that is prescribed to reduce cardiovascular ailments to prevent fatal events, was not effective for many patients, including Asian and Pacific Island patients. The calculus that the court applied to determine the appropriate penalty for this misconduct was very straightforward. It's clearly established in our state consumer protection laws. What the court did was took the number of retail prescriptions, refills, and non-retail units sold during this time period, that is from December 1998 to March 2010, and determined that that number constituted the number of violations. So there were 832,012 moments like that where there were refills or prescriptions or non-retail units that constituted these violations. What the court then did was look to the law, and the law allows for a penalty to be assessed for each violation that could be anywhere from $500 to $10,000. And the court said that for each one of those violations, we would assess a penalty of $1,000. And that's how we got to that number of $832,012,000 in penalties. Now, in this case, the court made this determination after making some very important findings. And the order we've made available in our press release yesterday, it's a very lengthy order. It details the, the level of evidence that was received, the type of witness testimony that was received, the kind of cross-examination that was undertaken. And what the court determined was that the defendants knowingly placed Plavix patients at grave risk of serious injury or death in order to substantially increase their profits. The court determined that the penalty should be divided between the Bristol-Myers Squibb defendant and then the three Sanofi defendants. So each will have to pay half of the full amount of the penalties imposed. The court's order was legally sound, and it was based on the overwhelming evidence that was introduced during this four weeks of trial. In our mind, this order vindicates what was seven long years of litigation by the state and by our attorneys who are assembled here. It's culminated in the trial and culminated in what we are now talking about, which is this decision and order. We believe that Judge Ochi presided over a fair and impartial trial. During this trial, both sides were allowed to present their case fully and completely, and as I said, to engage in examination and cross-examination. And after receiving all of the evidence that was proffered by the state and the defendants, the court found that for many years, defendants had deliberately turned a blind eye toward the problem, um, and they did so out of concern that if they were to address it, it might affect their sales and their profits. And the court looked at the actual documents of the corporate records of the defendants. He looked at the email transactions. He looked at different uh, communications between the defendants to make this determination. And he found that at the time that the defendants launched Plavix, which again was in 1998, that they knew that there was a significant issue regarding diminished patient response in Plavix or to, to Plavix, particularly in non-Caucasians. And despite knowing this, 
the court found that the defendants deliberately withheld vital information. They withheld it from the FDA and also from the greater medical community. Now, as a result of this, the, the court, who believed that this was information that both physicians and patients would want to know when making decisions about their health care, that it constituted unacceptable conduct. The bottom line here is that the defendants put profits over the well-being of patients in our state. And that's exactly what the laws of our state are designed to protect against, this type of conduct. And that's what is reflected in the court's order, a very significant order in a great amount, but because it reflects the amount of profit that was obtained by the defendants, despite knowing this information that physicians and patients would want to have in their calculus when deciding what kind of treatment they would want to undertake for their particular heart conditions. Now, the state plans on filing a judgment uh, as soon as the court rules allow us to do so. Uh, we expect that we will begin collecting on the judgment as soon as we are allowed to do by law. Can you kind of uh, discuss kind of what happened with that with some of the outcomes? Sure. I'd love to talk about this subject. It's um, quite newsworthy and has stirred a lot of talk about pharmacogenomics and the future of pharmacogenomics. So you're correct. Uh, Bristol Myers Squibb Company and Sanofi, who are the manufacturers of Plavix, um, generic name Clopidogrel, have been ordered to pay over $834 million to the state of Hawaii after failing to warn about the drug's potential health risk to patients with combinations of CYP2C19 variants, which result in CYP2C19 poor metabolizer status. So what does all this mean? Clopidogrel is metabolized to its active metabolite by CYP2C19. And patients carrying CYP2C19 nonfunctional alleles have reduced or no conversion of clopidogrel to its active metabolite. So you can imagine that that puts them at an increased risk of cardiovascular events. So what did the judge say? In this case, the companies were found to have violated Hawaii's consumer protection laws um, by not disclosing that Plavix would be ineffective for as many as 30% of patients in Hawaii. That's a, that's a pretty big number there. That's that's nothing you can really ignore when you're talking about 30% of people that are going to get this drug that at the time when it came out was kind of like a wonder drug, kind of changed the game for the the, the clotting issues for many Americans. And 30% of the people, it's not going to work in. That's a huge percent of the population. And obviously, this isn't just limited to Hawaii. But why did Hawaii kind of win the case? Is it due to just kind of their demographic makeup? Exactly. So a large proportion of Hawaiians are Asian and uh, Pacific Islander descent. So it's quite common to find the no-function variant in the Hawaiian population. And, you know, the judge basically said that uh, Hawaiians were um, placed in danger because because Plavix manufacturers uh, – did not um, disclose to the public that uh, serious injury or death could occur with patients that have those no functional ills that are taking platics. 
Yeah, so Hawaii wins $834 million, which is a large sum. Obviously, it doesn't replace the lives that were lost, but really it just makes the case for your specialty here, pharmacogenomics, and why some of these drug companies might need to start studying these things a little more, diving into it, and we might need to be utilizing these more as pharmacists and healthcare providers because we need to make sure the drugs we're giving people are effective. If you're talking a state like Hawaii where 30% of people, it's not going to be effective. There is no point of giving them that drug. We need to go on to something else that's going to actually work for them. So kind of what is your remedy or what do you kind of see that might help kind of fix this going forward since obviously the FDA's mission is to help protect the public from unsafe uh, medications? Sure. So it's kind of interesting um, to understand how this situation might play out in the future, you really have to consider who is responsible for protecting the public uh, from unsafe medications and medications that are non-therapeutic. We have state government. We have federal government. Are pharmaceutical companies the ultimate responsible party for protecting the public? Um, So let's just dive a little bit deeper into that concept. So we all know that the FDA is the federal body that's responsible for ensuring that medications are safe and therapeutic. Um, In this case, the state government sued. So what law or what regulation were they able to sue? Because the FDA, the federal government, is actually responsible for safe medications. And private manufacturers were answering to the FDA in the drug labels that they produced. They had to be approved. So the states actually used uh, consumer protection laws in this lawsuit because states do have those laws to protect their citizens. And this is not the first time that states have sued pharmaceutical manufacturers, drug distributors and such because their uh, state citizens were harmed from consuming medications. And Eric, you're right there in Ohio. You're very well aware of probably one of the most famous um, state uh, lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies uh, that happened right there in your state. Yeah, we had the kind of the amalgamation of all of the different lawsuits from the opioid trials here with uh, Purdue Pharma kind of come to a head and reach a settlement. And several states actually didn't agree to the settlement. And it's kind of been lurking forward, if you will, with some of that. But uh, back, I think it was in 2007, they originally settled with the federal government for, I think it was, uh, trying to go off the top of my head here, but it was several hundred million dollars. I believe it was $670 million. And even since then, Purdue kind of reviolated the things and got sued again and lost for several billion dollars. And now they're going to bankruptcy and they're looking into how the Sacklers are moving their money around. But that to digress for a second, kind of goes back to that they didn't reveal everything they knew to the FDA with this, mm-hmm. which is what we're looking at with the Plavix situation. And I think it's interesting yes. that Hawaii specifically made the case because of their demographic makeup. And it makes you wonder if we're actually looking at the correct populations and testing people and things like that when we're doing some of these drug studies. Just because if you were to mm-hmm. do this in Ohio, we don't have the Asian makeup that, I mean, we do have Asian people in Ohio, mm-hmm. it's not that Hawaii does. So this could very easily go undetected, which is 
could have been what they did. I don't know. I I don't remember the plavix studies that was before my time in pharmacy school. Uh, But this is kind of just begs the point of what you're talking about here of they really need to make sure they're looking at it. And with all of the issues we've seen in the past, you know, 2020 into 2021, and obviously even before that about race issues in this country, this is one where it actually does matter. Your race and your makeup do matter because it matters on how you metabolize things. Now, not every Asian person can't metabolize Plavix, but it's just a higher risk of not being able to. And I remember when this came out in 2009 about the drug interaction with Plavix and Omeprazole and, you know, the whole world freaked out about because everyone's on these two drugs. Yeah. And really, it's only an issue with uh, with certain populations as we're mm-hmm. seeing here. Uh, to your point. So I don't know if you want to elaborate on that at all, but I thought that was kind of like where this whole thing really jumped off. And then we started seeing some of these big difference in pharmacogenomics with medications. Sure. Plavix uh, and its pharmacogenomics really were a major milestone in pharmacogenomics and really drew attention to the need for pharmacogenomics and drug labeling. Like you said, I was a hospital I was a hospital pharmacy director at the time that the um, news came out. And quite honestly, uh, I lived in a rural North Carolina town. I don't, we didn't have very many Asians in our, in our town. Uh, our biggest concern w- was let's just switch all patients to a different PPI that doesn't interact with plastic. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's one less concern that we have. So it was more of a blanket. You know, rather than, I don't even know, I don't think back then pharmacogenomics testing was even on our radar. But, you know, today and even before this Hawaii lawsuit, for example, the state of Ohio and its opioid um, prevention programs, even before Ohio won the settlement, back in 2019, Ohio was already incorporating or planning to incorporate pharmacogenomics testing into their opioid prevention programs. Yeah, so which is really great. cool because of when we're talking about yeah. drug addiction here and driving that down. So it's really using your your field to address yeah. a hot, not just political issue, but like issue that saves like 50,000 lives roughly every year around the U.S. Exactly. So um, pharmacogenomics is coming, I believe, you know, it's it's moving further. It's moving forward. Um, I hate that cases such as the Hawaii case have come out, but in my experience, sometimes um, money does drive um, the outcomes we need to see. Yeah. Uh, and and I should say penalties that involve money. Um, so, you know, that is definitely a a driver of of outcome changers. So um, the great news about uh, Ohio is that they are studying pharmacogenomics in patients, um, both opioid naive and opioid addicted, to try to compare them. And um, they're using some of the money that they were awarded. This is an example of how monies can drive the changes we need to see. So um, they're using some of those monies to fund this research. Well, and what's crazy about it is when you see a lawsuit for $834 million that obviously goes the way of the state that filed it, one, that is a lot of money. But two, that is nothing compared to how much money was made and spent on Plavix over the years since it came out. And even the generic of it, because it's been generic for a substantial Mm -hmm. time now. 
And so, yeah, that definitely move the needle and that'll definitely open up some of the drug companies because that's mm-hmm. one state. Who's to say California isn't next, which is a much bigger state right. that could easily pull off a similar lawsuit. And I think that's something mm-hmm. we're definitely going to see them looking at. We saw, you know, some of the things that they do, they try and get immunity with some of like the vaccination uh, drives, especially right. with COVID. But that kind of makes sense. It's a pandemic. It's a little different. But you're not going to, that's not going to stand up for when it comes to a drug or something like this. What you were talking about, though, was there was a large rate of specific populations that do not uh, metabolize buprenorphine correctly. Buprenorphine is the Mm -hmm. active ingredient that's in drugs like Suboxone to help people who are trying to uh, overcome their addiction to things like opioids. Can you kind of discuss Mm -hmm. what populations that's an issue with and what kind of you've heard and seen with that? Sure. So a study was published a few years back that looked at medication-assisted treatment for patients with opioid use disorder. And what they identified in that research study was that African Americans are uh, more likely to have a variant in CYP3A4 that causes them not to metabolize buprenorphine uh, effectively to um, so that the drug works for them, in other words, so yeah. it's therapeutic. And what this was leading to was um, these uh, MAT patients being accused of uh, self-medicating. They were actually being discharged from the medication-assisted programs, almost unfairly, really, because, you know, the people were there because they wanted to get better, but they were being treated with the medication that did not work for them. And uh, so they were using more of their buprenorphine. They were running out early, for example, uh, just because they wanted to stay sober. But their genetics were fighting against them, unbeknownst to them. So, I mean, that's an example of how race, as in the social construct of race, <laughs> yeah. um, should not be used in medication therapy management. A doctor, a pharmacist, whomever, cannot look at a patient's skin and just because they are a certain color, determine whether a medication will be effective for that patient or if it will cause adverse drug events. Yeah. It really boils down to the genetics. And and really what it does to me, and the kind of way I interpret this is, especially if you're looking at something like this, if you know that Africans Amer- Americans are at higher risks of not metabolizing a drug like buprenorphine, uh, appropriately, which I didn't know until you told me about it, to be honest. So this is not like a common knowledge thing. And I work yeah. with these type of patients all the time where I work. And so okay. I thought this was interesting because it, you know, if, if, and I don't know the exact numbers, you can correct me on this, but if it's 2% chance in someone like me who's white and a 30% chance in someone who's African-American, I'm not going to necessarily worry about testing every white person unless they really have like an issue or I'm not seeing them succeed like you would expect, okay. but I'm probably going to do it 
for somebody who's African-American, mm-hmm. just so, because the rate is so high, I don't want them to fail treatment. I want them to get better. Mm-hmm. And if it's one in three people that you're catching it, as opposed to one in 50, there's a very big difference mm-hmm. of how many people's lives you're going to impact. And that's where pharmacogenomics can really Absolutely. come in and help with the treatment, whether you're picking a higher dose or lower dose or whatever it is, or even completely different medication at all, like we saw with completely uh, different. some of the people mm-hmm. who are uh, the Asian Americans who had issues with Plavix, which does happen in other populations, but to a much lower extent is that kind of mm-hmm. what what your thought was with a plan yeah. for like this yes yes so you know i just think back over my 22 years of experience in pharmacy and um the patients who were deemed opioid seekers or the patients who said my pain medicine isn't working and and my doctor doesn't believe me you know those were social um, social determinants that were put on people without considering their genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my hope for the future is is that we stop looking at what we think we see, and you know, and look deeper. One interesting thing about that is is that if I think back to like my practice of pharmacy, and I think back to maybe I was guilty of that for somebody that I was like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, you're running yeah. out and. I didn't know this. This is not the most common knowledge thing in pharmacy. You can't know everything when it comes to Mm -hmm. pharmacy. There's just too deep of a field to really know every single thing. You can know a lot of it. But at the same point, you know, maybe if I would have known that and I would have had access to be able to do something like this at the pharmacy, we could have caught it or, you know, sent it to the doctor's Mm -hmm. office or the doctor's office could have done it there if they were were aware of it, if they had a pharmacology expert like us in there. And then we could right. have a lot more people who wouldn't be frustrated, wouldn't get all kind of uh, go through all the mm-hmm. rings that we make people jump through to really kind of succeed when it comes to drug addiction, which is not easy just by right. itself. So I really think that this could be something that really moves a needle politically when we to get people to pay for this just on the opioid yes. factor. And then if we start seeing, okay, maybe we have other niches that we can kind of put this in. We know birth control sometimes get metabolized differently by different people. They might yeah. not work. Maybe that's another mm-hmm. one. I'm not sure. But that's a way that I see this moving. Where do you see pharmacogenomics moving in this area so that it can be better utilized? Sure. So, I mean, right now the most robust literature or most robust evidence is in psychiatry, cardiology, uh, but pharmacogenomics is not going away. It's uh, medications that are being produced today are more and more precise. Uh, and many of them now actually are being produced with companion diagnostics, which is actually typically um, a genetic test to determine if the medication will be therapeutic for that patient um, or if it will cause that patient adverse effects. So precision medicine is evolving and growing. And um, I believe all stakeholders are going to be forced to recognize it, incorporate it, and uh, help us see those positive outcomes. We want to see those positive medication outcomes. So one thing that you mentioned there was uh, psychiatric medication. I believe one of them is citalopram, if I remember correctly, that this is a big uh, kind of burgeoning thing that we're noticing with it. But you can correct me if I'm wrong there. We're also seeing some other major (laughs) players like Cleveland Clinic who are starting to use this. Can you kind of add on to that where you're seeing it in cardiology and who some of the players are using it as well as psychiatry? Yeah, so 
Sure. So pharmacogenomics uh, has been in academic settings for years. Uh, so you're correct. Uh, Cleveland Clinic, um, Cincinnati Children's, Vanderbilt University, Duke University, UNC, they are leaders in pharmacogenomics and academia and uh, the University of Pittsburgh, for example, School of Pharmacy, they are instrumental in community application of pharmacogenomics. And I actually trained um, with one of the um, creators of, of their program. So, yes, academic institutions, this is this is kind of old news for them. Yeah. Um, com community is where the um, awareness needs to be increased, and pharmacists are perfectly poised for that. Absolutely perfectly poised for that. Why do you think that is? Just our education of it, or just because the access, or both? Yes, both. Both. So pharmacists have the pharmacology knowledge. They have the pharmacogenomics knowledge. They have access to patients. They are uh, trained to advocate for patients and um, what is best for their medication outcomes. Um, they are, I mean, this should no, be no different, for example, than a prior authorization for medication. So, for example, if you have a payer who doesn't reimburse for a pharmacogenomics test, um, pharmacists are perfectly poised to make the argument, the clinical argument for medical necessity for why that patient should receive that test so that it uh, improves their medication outcomes. And you said one of the... So yes to all the above. <laughs> okay. And you said before in kind of the lead up to this that Boeing was one of the major companies that was kind of jumping in on this. Can you explain what they're doing and kind of why they were kind of an early adopter to this? Yes. So Boeing, um, as you might expect, is very well ahead of, of um, maybe the pack a very successful company, and Boeing realized the value of pharmacogenomics testing to the point that they offered it to their employees in their employee health program. So the company paid for the testing for their employees because they realized the value of maintaining healthy employees. Um, you know, just think about a very, very highly trained, highly skilled uh, engineer for Boeing. What does it cost Boeing or any other uh, major company such as Boeing if one of their most highly trained experts has a non-therapeutic medication outcome or an average drug event? Yeah. It costs them, you know, missed days of work. It costs them for the employee maybe to be at work but not be present <laughs> so they don't feel well. Um, workers' comp claims, I mean, they realize that investing in this test could help them have a healthier employee population. So they, they have been leaders in, in implementing within, within their employee health. And, you know, one thing I thought of, and maybe just because Boeing's had a, a few issues in the past few years, some of their planes and engines and what have you, is that maybe this is the stress yes. level, right? So if you're, you know, you're having engineers who are 
working all these long hours trying to make their planes get back up in the air again for their 737 MAX mm-hmm. or whichever one it was, they're going to be stressed out. Now, if you don't want that person to go yeah. through a bunch of medications for anxiety that mm-hmm. aren't working for them, you want to help pick one that works. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a really good reason why you'd want yeah. that because it's a top engineer and that literally the whole company's lifeline is just riding on that project and getting it fixed. So exactly, that's pretty yeah. stressful. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, let's just say that the CEO or someone in the C-suite of a large corporation such as Boeing were to die from an adverse drug event. What does that cost a company? Yeah. Um, well, and, and it's doing the right thing by the, by the employees. So when you're doing that, you know, you're giving the people who say it's the, it's the janitor, you're giving them the same access to exactly. optimized care as the person at the top. So you're really showing you just care for them mm-hmm. and you want to provide a service mm-hmm. so that they're taken care of. Absolutely. And um, I know of a, of a company in Ohio who did just that. The CEO himself actually had a pharmacogenomics test and it actually prevented him from having a negative outcome from Plavix. And he actually went back to his company and said, all of my employees will have this. That's pretty and cool. I value my employees. Absolutely. That's like a, that's the best story um, <laughs> of how a CEO wanted to share, wanted to share the help with his employees. So one thing I have to ask, so when we're talking about all this, we know that the time it takes for reading DNA and sequencing it and everything has sped up exponentially since the 90s and when some of these drugs were invented. How quick of a turnaround time does some of these things take if someone were to get like a uh, a test to make sure they can like pl- uh, process and metabolize Plavix efficiently? Sure, sure. So that's a, a loaded question. There's so many variables that go into that. Um, for example, Plavix, since we're on that subject, if the, um, because Plavix is typically going to be prescribed within a hospital where the patient's being treated um, from the original thrombotic event. So if that hospital has a laboratory, a genetics laboratory that can process the test, um, then they may be able to turn that around while the patient is still admitted to the hospital. Um, If the hospital relies on an outside lab, they may, may not get the test back before the patient is discharged from the hospital. Um, And this is why it's critical that community pharmacists be prepared. Uh, Be prepared for a patient to come to you who says, hey, look, I just got discharged from the hospital. They ran a pharmacogenomics test on me or they sent one out. I haven't gotten the results back yet, um, but these are my medications. And, you know, can I count on you to, to work with me and my doctor, you know, when the results come back? And um, when those results do come back, that pharmacist can be so important in that transaction to make sure that that patient if a change does need to be made in their medication, um, you know, since they were discharged, to be able to help that patient and be able to speak that language, the pharmacogenomics language. 
Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Even if it's just being able to, you know, read it and say you're slow or fast metabolizer mm-hmm. uh, with, with this enzyme, this medication may or may not mm-hmm. work. We can try it, but, you know, come back in a few weeks and we can make some recommendations from there based off what your symptoms are. I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, one question. Mm-hmm. So I, I always ask people on my podcast, what laws would they change? I'm going to tie this right into what you do. If you mm-hmm. could change one law that would help make pharmacogenomics better and more accessible, what would it be? Oh, I would say that I would pass a law that says insurers cannot deny coverage for a genetic test that has the clinical evidence, the robust clinical evidence to show that it does have a positive impact. It can you know, impact that patient's um, treatment decisions. Okay. And so- yeah, sadly, you know, yeah, um, that, that would be my law because sadly, even like BRCA1 and 2, the BRCA genes, which um, are responsible for breast cancer, um, you know, legislation to make sure that those tests are paid for because quite frequently reimbursement is, is a major factor in patients not getting the testing. Yeah, obviously it's, you're not going to get it if no one pays for it. We understand that. The, yeah. the, the one thing you were talking about before was how, and this is kind of what you were alluding to, that with amitriptyline, it's okay if they're using it for, I believe it was depression to get a pharmacogenomic mm-hmm. test, but not if they're using it for <laughs> sleep, which the only difference is just right. what dose you need basically. So can you kind of, is mm-hmm. that what you were alluding to with some of that? Sure. So even for payers who are currently reimbursing for pharmacogenomics, the policies are rather archaic. (laughs) And by archaic, I mean that, for example, one Medicare contractor only reimburses for CYP2D6 gene sequencing (laughs) in patients who are prescribed amitriptyline and it has to be for the treatment of a depression major depression bipolar depression and that's really specific (laughs) that's very specific and it's not up to today's standard of care for depression um how many patients do you see come through the pharmacy where amitriptyline is the drug of choice for the treatment of of depression. Not very um, many. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we have newer drugs today that are considered first-line treatment. And quite frankly, amitriptyline is used for your other, other conditions such as peripheral neuropathy or, or like you said, sleep or migraine prevention. So, yes. That eliminates a lot of people from being able to have that test paid for. Yeah. All right. So, hey, listeners, we're going to wrap this one up. But, uh, Becky, where can people find you if they want to kind of learn more about this? Since it's a little nerdy, it's a little specific, but it's super educational. (laughs) Sure, sure. So they can check me out on LinkedIn, Um, Becky Winslow. I'm I'm right there. Just just search for me in the LinkedIn. I have a website also. www.ingeniousrx.com and 
as always, you can find me on the PGX for Pharmacist podcast, which is broadcast on Apple and Spotify. So check me out on all those places. Awesome. So again, listeners, they were doing this a little bit of a hybrid episode, so I'm not going to close with my normal ending, but you can find me at yeah. Political Pharmacist anywhere, basically on social media or any uh, podcast platform. So feel free to reach out to me on there. And Hey, Becky, thanks for having this awesome discussion that went clinical, went political, went financial, went a little bit every way is about pharmacy. <laughs> That's what it's all about. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Becky. And thanks again, listeners. Thank you.